Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. Thanks for joining us at Walnut Creek Church. If you're new with us this morning, I want to extend a very special welcome to you. Uh, it's good to be together. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Cole Myers, and I serve as one of the pastors here at our Windsor Heights location. And before we jump in this morning, I've got one quick announcement for you, and that is next Sunday, June 4th, we are going to be hosting our annual Sunday Sunday event at Colby Park. And so this is a time for us to gather together at Colby Park, enjoy some free ice cream, some yard games, some music, and just be together. And we would encourage you to be inviting your friends, your family, your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors, whoever you can think of. We do have some physical invitations at the Welcome Center for you to pick up and take on out of here uh, to give to people uh, this week. Or there's also a digital invite that you can send people online, however that works. I'm not quite sure, but... Uh, visit our website and you can you can get our digital invite for that. And so we're looking forward to Sunday, June 4th. That's from 6 to 8 p.m. at Colby Park, just a few blocks west of here. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had a really incredible opportunity to travel with a few folks from our church to a country in Central Asia to visit some workers that were there. And it was a really incredible trip. I really appreciated just getting to connect face-to-face with some of, the, some of the folks that are there. And then just seeing firsthand what life is like as they serve the Lord uh, where they're at. And on the last day we were there, three of the guys that went on the trip, and then three of the guys that are on the ground, on the team there, we all got to go up into the mountains to do a little hiking. And it was an awesome experience. The guy who's, who's leading our time there, uh, he had a really unique method for hiking mountains. And his method was he would, he would be driving past a mountain, and he would see the mountain, and he would say, I think I want to get on top of that mountain. And so then he would pull up Google Maps on his phone, go to the elevation and terrain feature, and using the elevation, find where the summit of the mountain was and just drop a pin. And then he would just start making his way towards the pin. And so that's what we did. He got out, he he saw this mountain he wanted to climb, he got out his phone, he dropped the pin, and he started making his way towards this mountain. We we got in the car, so all of us piled in in this car, we started driving up this insane mountain road where three feet away was certain death, just complete drop off. And we got to a point where we couldn't really drive anymore, we all got out, and he just, he had his phone, and we just started navigating all the way up this mountain to this pin. And we were going up, and we were going up, we were going up. And then we got to a point, and he said, okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to bear right, and then we're going to start actually going up. And I thought, what have we been doing? And so uh, we, that's what we did. We started actually going up. And I actually have a picture to show you from my vantage point of our leader on the mountain. I'm just kidding. That, that's, that was not our leader. But, but I'm not kidding when I say that's what it felt like at times. It was, it was incredibly steep. I do actually, actually have a picture of us, a few of us, right at the top of the mountain. It was an incredible view, a, a really wonderful time to just be enjoying God and his creation on the top of a mountain for a couple hours. But the leader, I had never met. I had not met this guy. I shook his hand, and three minutes later, I was in his car driving up this mountain road. I was trusting a complete stranger with my life. And that might sound a little bit crazy, but when you think about it, how often do we trust complete strangers with our lives? I mean, if you've ever flown on an airplane, 
Think about that. You're trusting a complete stranger to fly you 30,000 feet above the ground at several hundred miles an hour in this little metal cylinder to a destination. You've never met the guy flying the plane. You're trusting the ground crew to make sure that they've done their job to make sure that plane does not crash and burn. Have you ever eaten at a restaurant? You've probably never met the people dealing with the food that you're about to put in your mouth. You ever gotten a haircut by a stranger? They got scissors two inches away from your eyeballs. You've never met them. I mean, think about that. You've taken medicine that you've picked up by a pharmacist you've never met. You, if you've had surgery, I mean, you're, maybe you've met your surgeon, maybe not. You're trusting someone to put medicine in you and then cut you open to do work. That's crazy. We do it all the time, though. Why is it so hard then to trust God? God who has actually revealed himself to us. Who has made himself known to us. And as he's made himself known to us, he's given us more than sufficient reason to trust him. But why do we find it so hard to do sometimes? So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to use our passage to really understand why it is that we can trust God with our lives. Last week, we were taking a look at the beginning of Genesis 15. We noted how Abram rightly brought his stress before the Lord. He rightly received comfort from the Lord, not because of a change of circumstances, but by trusting in God's promise. And this morning, we're going to continue Genesis 15, and we're going to answer this question. As Abram trusted in God's promise, on what grounds could Abram trust God's promise? Why was he able to do that? And similarly, then, the question that's going to shape our time is this. On what grounds can we trust God's promise? Okay, so we're going to answer that question by looking at the second element of God's promise to Abram. So remember, at the beginning of Genesis 15, we see that Abram had two primary concerns. It was his concern for God's people, right? He had genuine concern for Lot and his family, and then his concern for God's promises. Is God going to come through on his promise? And God's promise, it's really in two big categories. It's God's promise of the offspring, of Abram's offspring, the seed, and then God's promise of the land. Okay, we looked at the seed last week, and this week we're getting into God's promise of the land. And so if you've got your Bibles, I would invite you to open them up to Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 7, and we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter. So here's what it says. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set in and it was dark, 
a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring, from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hethites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Okay, so that's our text. Before we dive in to the text, though, what I'm going to invite us all to do is spend just a couple minutes praying together. And why do we pray? I think our hearts often, often need to be reminded that we depend on God for everything. We depend on God to understand His Word rightly, to apply it rightly to our lives, to live lives of holiness that honor Him in light of His Word. We need His grace for that, and we need to be reminded that we need Him for that. And so prayer is a way just to be reminding our hearts before the Lord of our need. And then also... We pray because we need help to see the big picture. Sometimes we get into the text and it's so hard to understand how it all relates to the big picture. And my hope this morning is that we would see how our text this morning helps us understand the big picture in light of the gospel. And so let's spend a couple minutes. I'd invite you to stick your heads together with someone you're nearby and spend a couple minutes asking God to bless this time. If you're new with us and you're like, I don't know anyone and I'm not really sure if I'm able to stick my head together with anyone, that's fine where you're at, pray that the Lord would use this time to teach your heart as well, okay? And so at this time, uh, stick your heads together, and I'll jump back in here and pray, and we'll get us going. Go ahead. Father in heaven, we confess our need for you this morning. I confess, God, that I am often unaware of how hungry my soul really is. God, I I pray that this morning we would see your word as the food that our soul needs. Help us to recognize that apart from you, we really can't grasp the word as we should. So God, I pray that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts this morning towards your word. Teach us this morning. Help us to have hearts that are postured in in a humble position towards you. God, we, we need you for this. We thank you for your grace that you pour out on us and your desire, God, that we might know you more and more, even as a result of this morning. So bless this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I, I mentioned that this passage... It helps us answer this question, on what grounds 
can we trust God's promise? We will get to that question, but there is another question that we need to deal with first. Because in verse 7 and 8 of our passage, we read this. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur, out, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? Abram is concerned with this promise of land. And so the question we need to deal with first is, why is the land such a big deal? Why is the land and the promised land that God has here for Abram, why is it such a big deal? And why is he so concerned about it? So we've established this promise that comes in two parts, the the seed and the land. But as we get into this, what we need to recognize is that while there are two aspects of the promise, they are not separate from one another. In fact, they are very, very connected. They're not separate. They're connected because they both play a role in communicating a far greater promise. There's there's a greater theme that's woven from the beginning of of Genesis to the end of Revelation. And this theme that both the seed and the land work together to communicate, it is the theme of the kingdom of God. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created people, and he created a garden, the Garden of Eden. And this garden, it was more than just the place where God put Adam and Eve to cultivate and the place where they were going to live. It was this garden that was unique. It was set apart. It was a set apart land in which God was going to uniquely dwell with his people and his people were going to uniquely enjoy sweet, intimate fellowship with God. See, the Garden of Eden, it was the beginning of the kingdom of God. It was the beginning of God's sovereign rule over his people in his place. So many of us have been able to understand the kingdom of God, God's sovereign rule over his people in his place. God ruled his people in this land, the Garden of Eden. But when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what they did is they rejected God as a sovereign ruler over them. And in doing so, they brought corruption and eternal death to themselves and to their seed, to their offspring. In addition, they forfeited their place in the garden. Okay, in other words, Adam and Eve were no longer ruled by God as his people in his place. And the kingdom of God was fractured. But it was not beyond repair. Because from that moment, God's mission to restore his kingdom, to restore his rule over his people in his place, it was enacted and it is still in motion to this day. And throughout scripture, we can see the hand of God sovereignly at work, bringing about the restoration of his kingdom, gathering his people back to his place under his loving kingship. And in Genesis 15, when God promises Abram that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, that is a real promise to Abram. And it begins with a real baby that comes from his seed. And then in our passage this morning, God says, Abram, I will provide a place, a land for all that come from your seed. In doing so, he's promising a real land, a real physical place whose boundaries God has established. It'll be a special place set apart where God would dwell with his people. They would enjoy sweet, intimate fellowship once again with him. See, what God is promising Abram, it's not random. 
It's not new. What he's promising Abram is that he will restore what was lost in the garden. And he'll restore it through Abram. In God's kingdom, it would once again be established through Abram. At least in part. And so, even as God is promising actual offspring and an actual land to Abram and his, and his family, what we want to see as we get into this passage is that the promise, it is more than that. See, the, the land, it's a big deal because it's pointing us to something even greater. God's promise to Abram is pointing us to a much greater promise in which he will once again rule over his people in his place, but completely and eternally. It's pointing us to that. Abram's big concern here, though, it's on God's promise specifically to him. He wants to know why he can trust God to come through on his promise. In verse 7, God said, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. He says this land, as though you're standing in the physical geographical land that the Lord is speaking of. And then Abram, in that land, he asks God, how can I know? How can I know I will possess it? How can I know that I can trust you? Have you had that question before? Have you asked God that question? Okay, you say I should trust you, but how can I know I can trust you? I know you're telling me to trust you, but how can I know that I can? I know you tell me not to worry. I know you tell me not to be anxious. I know you tell me to be generous with my finances. I know you tell me to take steps of faith and share the gospel of Christ with people. You tell me to do these things and to trust you in these things, but how can I know that I can? This is the question Abram's asking God. It's a question we often ask God. And what we're going to see in this passage is that God has a response to this question. And his response comes as he reveals his patience, his providence, and his promise to Abram. And so this is going to be our outline for the rest of the passage this morning. It's his patience, his providence, and his promise. And so we see this patience of God towards Abram. Notice what God doesn't tell Abram when he says, God, how can I know I can trust you? He doesn't say, you idiot. Of course you can trust me. Just do it. He doesn't say, Abram, you you just believed me when I told you about your offspring being more numerous than the stars in the sky, and now you're doubting me about this land thing. I mean, come on, Abram. That's not what he does. First, what does he do? He hears Abram. God hears him. Abram goes to God. He comes to God with his question, but God hears him. He doesn't ignore him, and then God responds to Abram by giving him instructions. Verse 9, he said to him, Bring a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then Abram obeys those instructions. Okay, we can infer based on what Abram did with them that either God's instructions were more uh, detailed to Abram than what we have recorded here in Scripture, or that Abram simply just knew what the animals were for. There's a cultural practice of that day. And we'll get into that in a little later in our passage. But in verse 10, we read, He brought all these to him, cut them in half, laid the pieces opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcass, but Adam drove them away, or Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. 
Okay, so we read of Abram's obedience. But what I simply want us to see first is God's patience. He is patient towards Abram. And as God is patient towards Abram, Abram's able to obey God's instructions. And God is positioning Abram to, to reveal his providence to him. God is going to remind Abram that he is a providential God. And so he puts Abram into a deep sleep. He appears to Abram through his sleep, likely in a dream. And it's in this state where he tells Abram exactly how and when Abram's offspring are going to inherit the land that was promised them. God is very, very specific. In verse 13, here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. There is a lot to unpack there. But what is God describing here? describing the account of the exodus this is the exodus he's explaining in specific detail how abram's descendants are going to come into the promised land abram says god how can i know i can trust you god is patient with abram and he positions him to reveal his providence to him you know what's interesting this is not the first time the book of genesis hints at what is to come you remember back in genesis 12 There's a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. And in Egypt, Abram failed miserably to love and to lead his wife well by allowing Pharaoh to take her. But then the Lord struck Pharaoh with a number of plagues until he let Abram and his wife go, and there they went back up from Egypt. It's this little mini foreshadow of the Exodus. It's this little mini foreshadow of what is to come. And now here, just two chapters later, God is describing with far greater detail what is to come. He says, Abram's offspring will be resident aliens in a land that does not belong to them. God is referring to the Israelites being enslaved to the Egyptians for 400 years. They're going to suffer under the rule of Pharaoh as slaves in a land. A land that is not theirs. That's what's coming. See, God's kingdom, it's fractured. Rather than being ruled by God as his people in his place, they will be ruled by Pharaoh as his slaves in Egypt, a land that is not theirs. Verse 14 says this, though, However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. Go out to where? Eventually, to the land that God has promised them as a freed people under the loving rule of God. God is promising Abram it's going to come. And from this point on, as we read the book of Genesis, we are seeing that God's sovereign hand is at work to set this up. And Abram and Sarah, they they do give birth to a son, Isaac, who fathers Jacob, who fathers 12 sons, who are led to Egypt because of a famine, where they stay, they grow as a family and into a small nation, and they eventually become enslaved to Pharaoh. This is all laid out for us in Exodus 1. You get to Exodus 1, it's clear that what God had told Abram was going to happen is actually happening. It's starting. And what we read through the book of Exodus is that after 400 years of enslavement, then God raises up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt and out of slavery. He confronted Pharaoh and demanded that 
Pharaoh let his people go. And because of Pharaoh's hardened heart and his refusal to comply, God judged Pharaoh through a series of plagues. He judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He put, brought a, a series of plagues on them. And the final plague, it was the death of every firstborn male in the land of Egypt. God gave his people very specific instructions. We call this the Passover, right? Where they were to paint the blood of an animal on their doorpost and then God's judgment would pass over the house and death would not come upon them when he saw the blood on the doorpost. So after this plague, the Egyptians woke up, their firstborn sons were dead. In great distress, Pharaoh finally agreed to let the Israelites go. Moses instructed the Israelites to ask the Egyptians for gold and silver, which they gave them. Moses led them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, across the Red Sea to freedom with many possessions, just as God had told Abram in Genesis 15. See, God is providentially pointing Abram and us ahead to the Exodus. Much of Genesis is pointing us ahead to the Exodus. The rest of Genesis is setting the stage for the Exodus to take place. And you know what happens as you continue to read through the Old Testament? You continue to read through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the prophets. You know what happens? The Old Testament authors over and over and over and over and over again, they point back to the Exodus. When God talks of himself in the Old Testament, he over and over and over and over again, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When other people mention God, they say, this is God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When the Israelites talk about themselves, they say, we are the people that God brought out of the land of Egypt over and over and over and over again. Most Old Testament books explicitly reference the Exodus Genesis points us ahead. The whole rest of the Old Testament is pointing us back to the Exodus. It's pointing us back to the singular event that God is telling Abram about hundreds of years before it's ever going to occur. And it all relates to this promise of land and more broadly relates to the restoration of the kingdom. Why does the Old Testament point us back to the Exodus? two big reasons. It is the moment where God most clearly began the restoration of his kingdom. Right? His, his fulfillment to his promise to Abram. He had promised Abram that he would make him into a great nation and that his offspring would inherit the land. And by the time of the Exodus, Abram's offspring, they had multiplied, but they were not their own nation and they did not possess their own land. So the Exodus, it was the clear beginning of all of this coming into fulfillment. But secondly... The Old Testament points back to the Exodus but because the Exodus points us ahead to an even greater promise. A more incredible promise. A more incredible rescue. It's the promise of eternal life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. Right? Just as the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, we all have been born into slavery to sin. And left to ourselves, we can't help but violate God's law. We are slaves to our lusts and our desires. Our wickedness offends God. And we have no hope of freedom apart from divine intervention. Escaping from slavery to the Egyptians was not an option for God's people. Escaping 
from our sin is even less of an option for us unless God intervenes. And God did intervene. He intervened for the Israelites. He sent Moses to lead his people out of slavery into a place, into a land of freedom, provision, and fellowship with God. He took the Israelites out of Egypt and made them into a holy nation, a nation set apart for his own possession so that they might enjoy freedom of fellowship with God and in doing so, make God known among the nations. You know, Jesus Christ is the true and better Moses. Jesus came to lead God's people, meaning me and you, if you are in Christ, out of slavery to sin by paying the price for sin with his own blood and to lead us into a place of freedom and provision and fellowship with God. 1 Peter 2.10 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what the Exodus account is pointing us all to. It's a foreshadow of greater things yet to come. And so when God is pointing Abram ahead to the Exodus in Genesis 15, it is a foreshadow of a foreshadow. Clearly God is promising actual physical land to Abram's offspring, but he is doing more than that. He is providentially pointing us to a greater promise that his kingdom will be restored, not just temporarily and in part, but for all of eternity in all of its fullness, that God will reign over his people in his place once again. And as believers in Christ, we are his chosen people. We will live eternally under the loving lordship of the heavenly king in a designated place in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, and he will dwell among us. This is what it's all pointing us to. And so God demonstrates his patience and his providence by spelling out a manner in which Abram's descendants then will inherit the land And then God confirms this promise in a remarkable way. So the third point on our outline, it's simply the promise of God. And this is where the sliced up animals come into play. Okay, so we we read that that Abram procured the animals that God had instructed him to get. He prepared them by slicing them in half and then arranging the parts of the animals so that one could walk between them. Okay, and this would have been consistent with cultural covenant practices. This, this was like the genuine pinky promise on the playground, okay? This, this was like the cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye promise of the time. It, it, what they would say, what would happen are that people would walk between the parts of the animals as a way of saying when they were making a covenant, if I do not keep my end of the covenant, may I become like these animals, okay? That, that was the nature of the covenant. There's an example of this in Jeremiah 34, if you wanted to read that for your own uh, delight later on. So Abram's setting the stage for this covenant to be enacted. And after darkness falls, God tells him the exact manner in which his people are going to inherit the land. And then he does something remarkable. Verse 17 of our passage. It says this. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, 
I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Heathites, Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. You know what we have in verse 17? It's what we might call a theophany. Okay, so In other words, it's a physical manifestation of God himself. Now, why would God come in a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch? It's hard to say for certain. We know that oftentimes when God appears to his people in physical form, it's in the form of fire, so it's consistent with what we see throughout Scripture. Some scholars have suggested that a smoking fire pot could also be translated as a smoking furnace to represent the affliction that God's people would face uh, when they were under slavery in Egypt. And then God's, God coming as a flaming torch along with that would symbolize then the comfort and guidance that God would provide throughout that affliction. Could be. But either way, what we need to see in this is that it is God, and it is God alone who passes through the animals. It is only God active in this covenant. Abram plays no part in ensuring that God would be faithful to his promise. There's no conditions placed on Abram. God will uphold his promise because he is God. I imagine being Abram at this point and just witnessing this. So I, I wasn't there. I, I don't know exactly what would have been going through Abram's mind at this point. But he had asked God, God, how can I know? And this was God's response. God confirmed that he would uphold his promise. I, what more could God have done than become to Abram, a physical manifestation in the form of a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot, and then make a covenant with himself before Abram's eyes. The text doesn't say this, but I imagine that witnessing this moment, it would have caused Abram to walk in real, authentic, joyful worship and confidence. And this, this joyful confidence, it would not have come to Abram because he tangibly experienced the fulfillment of God's promise. It would have come to him because he believed God's promise. God promised Abram that he would make him into a great nation, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, and that this would happen from his very own offspring. He brings Abram out to number the stars and tells him that his offspring will be more numerous than this. And then he tells Abram that he will inherit the land that he's in now. Abram asks God, God, how can I know? And then God gives Abram reason to trust him. He is patient with him, and he explains exactly how it's going to happen in his perfect providence. And then he makes an oath with himself. God has done the same for us. He has done the exact same for us. Turn with me, if you can, to Hebrews. Starting in chapter 6, starting in verse 13. You know, the book of Hebrews, is there is so much to unpack as it relates to what we've been studying through Genesis. We, we just finished up a series on Hebrews uh, about a year ago. And so if you are wanting to jump back into that, those you can find some of those sermons online. Or just, again, read through the book of Hebrews. There is so much to unpack. But here, in chapter 6, starting in verse 13, here's what we read. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What does the author mean when he says, we have this hope? (laughs) Wasn't the author talking about the promise that God made to Abraham? And the oath that he confirmed with Abraham? And then he says, but we have this same hope. Galatians 3, 27 through 29 clarifies this for us. In Galatians 3, it says, For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. It's an astounding truth. It's true because the person of Jesus Christ comes from the seed of Abraham. He is the promised seed. He is the blessing to the nations. And those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, the ones whom God has called, they are now hidden in Christ. It is through Christ that we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Heirs of what? Heirs of the kingdom. We are heirs of the kingdom. See, like Abraham, when we say, God, how can I know I can trust you? How can I know your promise is for real? God responds to us. And he responds to us through his son. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God proved his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have also received an inheritance. What is our inheritance? It's the kingdom of God. It has come to us in Christ. A couple of verses after that, Paul says in uh, verse 13 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, he says, In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment. In other words, the guarantee, the oath of our inheritance until the redemption of his possession to the praise of his glory. See, God has not walked between some cut up animals to prove his promise to us. He sent his son. And then he sent his spirit to dwell within us as a guarantee of our inheritance. That's what God has done for us. Later on in Hebrews, in chapter 11, the author makes it clear that while this promised geographical land was the inheritance that God had promised Abraham's offspring, it was not what Abram himself was looking forward to. He knew he was going to die before he inherited the land. He was not going to make it there. Hebrews tells us that he considered himself to be a foreigner and a temporary resident on the earth, that he looked forward then to a city whose architect and builder was God, to a better place, a heavenly city that God had prepared for him. And God has prepared this city for us too. We are foreigners, we are temporary residents on earth, but we have a land awaiting us. He has promised it. He has proven that it is ours by sending 
his son, and he has guaranteed it with his spirit. It is ours. You know, what was stated, or I'm sorry, what was started and then lost in the garden, God will bring to completion. There's a picture of this in Revelation 21. Revelation 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. This is why we can trust God. This is what we can trust God for. This is why he tells us not to worry, not to be anxious. Trust me with your finances. Trust me when you're having conversations about Christ with people who don't know him. This is why we can trust him. It's because this is not the better place. There is a better place coming. We can know that it is. Like Abram, I think this promise, it ought to fill us with joyful confidence as we look forward to the promise. Not because we tangibly experience it today. Abram never did that. It's because we believe God at his word. It ought to fill us with joyful confidence. So why do we so often lack our joyful confidence? could be a lot of reasons. could be because we don't believe the promise. Right? I think it's worth examining your hearts in this. Do you believe? Have you come to a place of actually believing the promise of God? Have you come to a place of genuine faith in the promise of God, in the gospel? I think many of us have. And, and unbelief might not actually be the reason why we fail to walk in joyful confidence. I think one of the reasons... Many of us can fail to walk in joyful confidence daily. It's because we're wanting a different promise. We're not actually wanting the promise of the kingdom. I want you to engage in a little thought experiment with me as we close our time. I want you to imagine that you're on a sports team and you, you've played on a sports team before. You don't have to imagine this too hard, okay? But you're on a sports team, and it's the end of your season. And it was a typical season. You won some games, you lost some games, you got along fine with your teammates, you had a decent coach, he was nice enough. And to celebrate the end of the season, your coach is throwing a pizza party. It's nothing too fancy, okay? Just some Little Caesars, $5 hot and ready, some Chips Ahoy, juice boxes. And then imagine this. Imagine that your best friend just won an all-expense-paid week-long trip to a place of your choosing. Maybe one of these. It's on the screen. It'll get there. You, you close your eyes and you imagine the place you want to be. There it is. Where do you want to go? Wherever you want to go, your best friend just won an all-expense-paid trip and they invited you to join them. This is awesome. They want you and your best friend are going to the most amazing place you could possibly imagine, all expense paid trip for a whole week, except for it just happens to be the same time the coach is throwing your team a pizza party. 
And you go on that trip, but you spend the whole time sulking and complaining that you're not sinking your teeth into a lukewarm piece of pepperoni, Little Caesar's pizza. Don't we long for the lesser things sometimes? See, our, our desire for the promise of pizza can be far too strong. Right? We, we want other promises. We want the promise of a full night of sleep. We want the promise that our kids are going to cooperate with our unspoken preferences. That we'll get married to this non-existent, perfect human specimen that we've created in our mind. We want the promise of good health and friendly neighbors and affordable sports leagues and safety and a full head of hair and kitchen appliances that work the way that we want them to work. These are the promises we want. We want promises that everyone's going to like us, that we'll always have the skills and abilities to do the things that we enjoy doing. We want the promise that nothing bad is going to happen to those that we love. And when those things don't come to pass, our joy and our confidence, it's sucked out of us like air out of a balloon. We walk around deflated. Maybe not externally deflated. Maybe externally we can put on a good face, but internally our hearts, we just walk around thinking we've been let down. That somehow, for some reason, God has allowed us to draw the short end of the stick. Why is that? See, when we're walking not in confidence and joy in the promise of God, it's not because we're desiring more than what God has promised. It's because we're desiring far less than what God has promised. Like Abraham, are you desiring a better place, a better promise, a heavenly one? See, God has promised Abraham and he has promised us that we will once again live under his rule and in his place that he has prepared for us. His kingdom will be restored eternally and completely. And for those of us who are in Christ, we belong in that kingdom. It's incredible news. And so in light of this, I I just have one point of application for you this morning, and that is to desire the better promise. Desire it. Walk in joyful confidence that is yours in Christ. As we end our time together this morning, sing out with joyful confidence in the promise of God. This week, Spend time with the Lord. Seek the Lord. Ask Him to remind you of the promise that you have in Christ. Ask Him regularly as you read the Bible, as you fold laundry, as you walk to school, whatever it is, wherever you're going, ask Him regularly to remind you of the gospel, of the promise that you have in Christ, and walk in joyful confidence of it. His promise is the consummation of His kingdom that commenced in the Garden of Eden. And in His grace, He has invited you and I into it. So maybe walk in joyful confidence in this promise. Let's pray together.